Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Ostrozhnost, Ostrozhnost, which is, of course, Russian for Achtung, Achtung. Um, hello, <laughs> and welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Chalk, yet another Connolly entitled, load-bearing pun titled, um, We Have Ways of Making You Talk, to celebrate and simultaneously mourn the um, uh, absence of the Chalk Valley History Festival. Oh, it's so COVID- this week is so, the weather's just so perfect for having a festival on the field in England. I know, this, I mean, this, this is the thing. Um, uh, uh, when, we, when we, the other day we were in Wiltshire looking at the T34, which I think will have gone out once, we, once this goes out, so I, we can talk about this like it's happened. Um, I was Rachel brought us lunch um, and she was I, I said oh you know how is it with there, there being no festival thinking there might be a little bit of oh it's such a relief not to have to worry about Portaloos <laughs> but she she she, she was uh, very sad about it and uh, I mean it's the sort of pinnacle of your year isn't it Jim well it is it in a way yeah and I mean I mean can I just point out that usually um, the kind of sort of I love the festival too. I hate the festival and I never want to do anything again. It's about 99 to 1 in favour of the hating bit, as far as Rachel's concerned. <laughs> I mean, Rachel is always cursing the History Festival. And now suddenly, when it's been taken away from her, she's all kind of sort of, oh, I'm really missing Aww. it. Yeah, I, you know. Uh, I, you well, know, that's wonderful. It, so it, that's good. It, so it, hopefully, I mean, you know. Increases the chances of its return. Well, I mean, what you don't want is a year off, and you think, "Oh, why did we ever bother with that?" Well, Rachel does all the operations, so she's in charge yeah, yeah. of all the site, the whole thing, and actually the thing that makes it work. Plus the schools festival, which is the kind of really yeah. important bit in a way. Yeah. Um, so she has almost the most important job of all. But anyway. Right now, today, um, uh, having having played on played around with the T thirty four, I think it's only really mm-hmm. appropriate that today we. Move our sites to the Eastern Front, which our regular listeners on We Have Ways of Making You Talk on the podcast and on the Patreon say we neglect sometimes because yeah. uh, shocking. we have a... It, it is shocking. And that voice you hear there is Alex Ritchie, who is here to help us redress that balance and turn our attention towards the Eastern Front. In particular, um, uh, Operation Bagratine. Have I pronounced that right, Alex? Uh, well, you can, right? you can say Bagration, you can say Bag of Rations, you can say Bagration, you can, you can, you can play with it any way right. you want to. But the Russian would be Bagration, named after a, a, Bagration. A, a, an, an obscure general that Stalin decided was the person to whom this battle should be named for. So that's that's. A, I'm really upset about the uh, 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 Chalk Valley not going ahead either because I was supposed to be in the T34 crew. 
all female yes, crew. Yes, you were. And 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 I I bereft. I'm in bereft. I can. I've got little bits. Wearing of, your tanker's <laughs> uniform. I know. I just you know it would have been so much more fun than than you know looking at my little bits of tank track which I've got here in my study. But that's not really the same, is it? I mean, it's not quite quite you know <laughs> like driving the T34. Oh. The fumes and the and the stench and the and the you know oh, oh, would have been great. <laughs> How tall? The, the just how tall? Was terrible. Yes. How tall are you, Alex? That's my main concern. Now you're talking because because I'm six foot three. James is a similar height, and we found it impossible. Very sort of <laughs> elbows and banged heads and and scuffed. Well, foreheads I've got the great good fortune of knowing a a, a, a chap here um, who uh, runs the tank museum just outside of Warsaw. And uh, I uh, occasionally yes. get to go into a T-34 and I do find it, actually the first time I went, I took a bunch of my students, um, summer school students, and I was wearing it like a summer dress, not a good idea, you know, sort of clambering in, <laughs> you know, I mean, it was not, not, a, not a good thing to do. I've never made that mistake again. <clears throat> but yeah, they are very, are very cramped. And, um, and then, then they stink. I mean, how, how these guys uh, managed to, you know, go from Moscow all the way to, Berlin and, and those things, I just don't know. I mean, really. They well, amazing. very few of them did, I guess, is the, is the well, most true, of them okay. lasted Fair less enough. than a week, didn't <laughs> they? But, I'll tell you what, though, Alex, what, what I really want to do is I, we, we should organise a We Have Ways trip. You to should. Come out and, you absolutely uh, and should. Do, see you and do Operation Bagration. You should. Absolutely should. But let's do a, a We Have Ways trip to this part of the world. There's so much to see. I mean, there's just so much stuff, and uh, even even on. This I am topic. literally all over that like a rash. Good, really good, am. good, good. <laughs> well, uh, how charming. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but yeah, we were we were both we were very impressed with the T thirty four and and its enormous noise uh, and smoke and yes. general fumes yes. and. Although yeah. we were and in the, the we were in the belly of this beast, <laughs> uh, and you know perhaps a little bit closer than we should have been because the one meter rule hasn't quite come in yet, uh, um, well, we were fairly confident that with all those fumes, no <laughs> coronavirus kill, had any got, chance of surviving. Maybe this is the secret <laughs> the secret formula, you know, the cure. T thirty four fumes. <laughs> Bottle up some T thirty four fumes and spray liberally. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, but Operation Bagration, I quite like saying it like that. Um, I mean, it, it's it's amazing. You know, I've been bullying you about this, about the fact that there is no English language single volume history of Operation Bagration, and yet it's happening exactly the same time as normally, pretty much. You know, originally supposed to be launched on the 22nd of June, of course, in an ape of, of Barbarossa. Um, finally gets going on the 23rd of June. So it's a kind of same sort of time. It's that summer 1944 offensive. And it's massive, isn't it? I mean, it is so huge. And it is so overwhelmingly successful. Well, it's an incredible battle. And, and you're absolutely right. It's, it's very little known. People concentrate on Normandy landings. Of course, there are obvious reasons for that. But when you're talking about, you know, the initial forces of the of the Soviets is like over 1.6 million uh, troops. And you're talking about the actual destruction, complete destruction of Army Group Center. Um, it's, it's just an extraordinary feat. And it's an amazing. I mean, what they accomplish is, is, is beyond belief. All of a sudden, you know, you've got um, these are sort of obviously the Germans have been fighting like crazy on the central part of the of the Eastern Front for a year and a half without anybody really noticing after Stalingrad, they were fighting and fighting and fighting anyway. And these battles have kind of been forgotten by history. 
And but finally, the Soviets say, okay, that's it. You know, and, and this was agreed at Tehran after all that, they, that the Soviets were going to start an offensive in conjunction with the Normandy landings. In other words, to try and draw the troops away from what was going to be the landing in France. So it is coordinated in that sense between the between the Allies. But the, the Soviets just go for it. And, and they not only just go for it in the sense that they stick their 1.6 million troops out there, but they also devise this incredible, complex uh, maskrovka, this idea that they're going to pretend they're going to fight, go, go into uh, Army Group North Ukraine instead. Hitler falls for it, hook, line and sinker, starts pulling tanks and, and troops and everything away from Army Group Center. And so, of course, Stalin is this brilliant, goes through the Pripyat marshes. Nobody goes through the Pripyat marshes. You know, completely stupid thing to do, impossible, can't be done. And we're talking about territory. So when we do our trip out here and we go there, you see the, the, the terrain is just impossible to fight. in. It's basically just swamp, bog, you know, um, still water. You don't know how deep it is. It's absolutely impossible to get through. And so the Germans go, no, they're not going to come here. And ha ha, they do. God, it's, it's, it's so like the Ardennes in reverse. It is, it, it is. It is, and it, and, and, and and but you're talking about a, a you know an area that's just simply massive. I mean, really, sort of half of Belarus is made up of this this territory, and 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 you know what they and what they do is so incredible. So they it's almost like Vietnam style tactics. They 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 get like straws so they can hide under the water with with like straws so they can breathe. They build corduroy roads through the swamps secretly. They do this all in darkness. They don't you're not allowed to use lights. So they. So they put uh, sort of phosphorescent paint on the backs of their trucks so they can see, each other, see you know, follow one truck to the other so that, you, that there's no signal to the Germans that they're doing all of this stuff. It's all done in complete secrecy and darkness at night. They're moving troops around and so on. It's just unbelievable what they do. And they do build this, this route through the, the, through the marshes and then just slam into the Germans and, and they're completely shocked, horrified, don't know what to do. I mean, I mean... Because we're all very dazzled, aren't we, by, um, by by sort of particularly American engineering. I mean, British engineering as well, but particularly American engineering and, and the feats they do and the kind of airfields that get get sort of built just like that and in a matter of sort of seconds, it seems, in Normandy and so on. But Soviet engineering feats are out of this world. Well, the thing is that, that what they do is, is, is different. I mean, the Americans just in the Second World War, for example, just through money, technology, you know, they were second to none, the arsenal of democracy. It's just incredible. But first of all, a lot of that uh, arsenal goes to the Soviet Union through Lend-Lease. So one of the things that makes the uh, Bagration so successful is that they have Jeeps, they've got Studebakers, all these all these trucks and things which make the, the Red Army much more mobile than it would have been before. Plus they've got other supplies as well. I mean, even food, the Hershey bars and, and you know, spam and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. And, and it, it actually makes this operation much more successful than it otherwise would have been because they're, they're much more mobile because of the, uh, largely because of Lend-Lease. So that's one thing. But in terms of the Soviet uh, effectiveness, I mean, what they do is, it, T-34 is a very good example. It's not the most, you know, gizmos and bells and whistles tank on the planet at all, but it's easy to fix. It's basic. You've seen it. It's you know, it's 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 pretty simple to understand as a as a as a vehicle. You can be some poor you know farm guy from Ukraine who's been picked up and forced to join the Red Army or whatever with a with a you know screwdriver and a wrench. You could probably get it back together if it, if something goes wrong. And the, and the Red Army really was like this. They they they. I mean, of course, they got better and better. The Germans got worse and worse. And we're talking about the the um, Army Group Center, for example, being at sort of its worst. Um, capability by the time you're talking 1944-45, but um, but the Red Army had gotten better. But still, it's it's a pretty basic 
um, force, pretty basic equipment, um, you know, but they just get on with it and they go forward. I mean, it's, it's, so that's really, I think, one of the things that makes, makes them so successful. And of course, by this time on the Eastern Front, the idea of Blitzkrieg and the German, you know, goose-stepping Wehrmachtis, SS guys, that's just all gone out the window. They're lucky if they could get a horse and cart to, to carry them uh, to carry them uh, forward. And yeah, because they're, they're, they're seriously underpowered, aren't they, the Germans? I mean, Army Center's got, what, 900 tanks against, yes. oh, I don't know, like five and a half thousand tanks, Soviet tanks or something. I mean, you know, they've got less tanks in Army Group Center than they've got in North. Although, although Soviet experience against German armour, I mean, if you only look at the summer before at Kursk, and the Soviets know this perfectly well, uh, that how vulnerable they are if the, Germans, if the Germans have the right tanks in the right place. Yes. Don't they? So, so which is why, the, why you've got this application of massive force, even though, even though the Germans are essentially on their arse. I mean, the, 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 you, the, the Russian way is to is to smother it, it, is to smother and, and not run the not run the risk of that not working either well that's that's absolutely true but but you know one of the one of the points was that because of the Maskarovka, because of Hitler's mistake actually it was of pulling all of yeah. the troops and the tanks out you're left with just a few hundred tanks uh, up against the Soviet forces which was you know some I mean, I can't remember, so 3,600 tanks on the Soviet side and a few hundred yeah. on the German side. So, you know, they really, they didn't have a chance, you know, even if, if, uh, if, they, if Hitler hadn't made this mistake, that the, the yeah. Army Group Center was so weakened by this point that they wouldn't have been able to stand up against the Soviets. So what was the deception that, that um, fooled Hitler so? Because after all, we, I mean, again, we, we, you, you go back to the West, the, the Western Allies, Fortitude and all those all those deception uh, plans they're well known now you know uh, uh, um, American First Army all these sort of things that are part in fact part of the way we tell the D-Day story is you've, you've got to spend some time on deception because ha ha the silly Germans for all for all this stuff what are the Russians doing that 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 makes that makes Hitler um, bet in the wrong direction well the first the first thing was that as i mentioned earlier that hitler didn't believe that the soviets would be uh, yes would, aside would be, aside from the go, go, marshes, go through yeah. this area and then they made they deliberately started moving forces or fake forces they had you know the sorts of things that were done also in in, in normandy uh rubber tanks uh, fake bases they they moved uh fake armies around so they these these uh, soviet soldiers didn't know what was going on so they would be you know uh, told to get up at night and move and have flashlights in the forest and, and, and sort of look as if they were moving. And then they were sent back to do the same thing in another forest. And they were like, what, what's going on? This is ridiculous. But uh, so they, they deliberately made it look as if they were going to go into, into uh, North Ukraine. And, and, um, and Hitler, because he was by this point, he'd taken over command himself. Uh, he had. He was really. Um, I mean, the the general uh, uh, Busher, who was who was in charge of uh, when the when Bagration started, was fired, and Walter Model was put in in his stead um, because Bush actually had the audacity to go and tell Hitler that something really big was about to happen. Hitler totally ignored him and uh, and, uh, and 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 carried on with this idea that he knew where the Soviets were going to fight, and that's uh, and that was that. So. You know, this was really an example of, I mean, after the war, the generals all said, oh, it's all Hitler's fault and he was an idiot and we, we're completely innocent and it, it's all rubbish. But in this particular case, actually, Hitler made a huge, uh, huge mistake. Um, and then he, he made the other mistake of saying, OK, well, this has started. Oops, uh, I guess I was maybe, well, he never said I was wrong. But then he came up with this idea of, of creating these fortress cities. So all these places like Vitebsk and Minsk and so on had to be held to the last man, which was absurd because had the Germans pulled back as Walter Model wanted to do um, and regrouped 
early quickly enough, they might have at least withstood some of this onslaught. They wouldn't. The, the Soviets might not have gotten all the way to the gates of Warsaw, which is, after all, quite a feat when you look at the map. I mean, going, you know, just racing through these these or Orshilev and, and Vitebsk and Minsk. So it's, Minsk falling was a huge deal for the Germans. And this is where um, Erich von der Bachzelewski was based. This is the center of the of the partisan war and so on. Huge center. They they they're panicking. They they they, they can't get out. They're, all these Germans are encircled. And all of these cities, the same thing happens time and time again because of Hitler's order to keep these places uh, uh, to the last man. These fortress cities. So this was another huge error that Hitler makes. So so you know, error upon error upon error uh, leads to the the biggest defeat of the of the Wehrmacht in World War Two. And by, and by the, it, sorry, go on. You you go out. Why so so to 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 cut to the chase? Why is Bagration? Why is it not a headline? But you know the the ink spilt about Kursk about the Kursk offensive, which um you know and fresh ink being spilt right now with people burrowing right down into the German records. Ben Wheatley who and Roman Topol and people like that really having a look at the detail and getting right into the about Kursk and yet Kursk is is arguably an inconsequential um, uh, dust up on the Eastern Front that of course is uh, then Sicily happens and the Germans are looking in both directions why why do we not know is it D-Day that overshadows this because this is a this as as you say this is a colossal defeat probably actually the end of the Again, and we've, we talk about this a lot on the podcast, the moment where the Germans have definitely lost, <laughs> <laughs> uh, where there really is no point in them carrying on. This is probably it on the Eastern Front, isn't it? So why don't we know about it? Why don't we talk about it more? Why isn't there a single one? Well, I think you're right. I think that there are lots of other things going on at the same time. And D-Day, of course, is the, is the parallel moment that finally the Western mm. Allies go onto the beaches and they actually start coming through France. It's a big, big, big deal. I think that the... Um, the feeling amongst Western historians is that uh, the big turning points are Stalingrad and, and Kursk, and, that's, and, and these are big sort of momentous battles in place, and you can understand them much better. I mean, Kursk, you, you just look yeah. at all these tanks going at each other, and you, can, you kind of get a mental picture, and, and Stalingrad the same, you know, that, and, and, and uh, um, there have been some great books about both of those battles, and it's something that people can understand. I mean, how many people yeah. know where Vitebsk is or Mogilev? I mean, you don't. Nobody cares about these places. Uh, who knows where yeah. Belarus is on the map? Um, and and it was a huge, huge war of movement. So it's not. It doesn't have the same sort of epic battle mode. Uh, I think in in the imagination as something like uh, Kursk or Stalingrad or even the battles outside of Moscow. And so I think that's part yeah. of it. And also, there's so many, so many other things going on at the same time, as you pointed out. And I don't know. It's 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 just a, a it's a bit of a mystery. Then, of course, you've got the uh, embarrassing episode of the Warsaw Uprising, which happens at the end of uh, of the of Bagration, and it's something that neither the Soviets nor the Germans uh, really want to talk about much. Uh, the Iron Curtain falls, and this sort of history is kind of erased. The Soviets sit on the other side of the Vistula River until January, uh, having defeated, yes. um, having, uh, you know, gotten up to Warsaw, they just sit there. <clears throat> so it's kind of a damp squib at the end as well. Um, and it's only when they start going for Berlin, uh, st starting with the January offensive, the winter offensive, that you start once again getting this sort of, well, we're going for Berlin, this big, you know, prize, the end of the war is coming. So I think that's one of the reasons as well. It just sort of uh, sort of peters out. 
And um, and uh, as James was saying, the house I'm, I'm recording from now was, was one of the headquarters of um, Herbert Gila, who's the head of the Viking SS. They were headquartered here in this in this house. And, uh, and you know, they just sort of sit here after it's all over and go, well, you know, <laughs> okay, now what? You know, it's a very, it's a very strange thing. And the Germans, I mean, they then, um, the, the guys who were fighting here either go to Budapest, start fighting in Hungary, or they're sent up to uh, East Prussia, former East Prussia. Um, and so this area is, is basically more or less abandoned. They, they, nothing happens until the, the Soviets start moving again in January. I mean, Alex, it seems to me that the, 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 the Red Army way is, is so different from the Allies, you know. What you see with the Allies is this sort of continual broad front, <coughs> this continual sort of broad front, sort of push, push, push all the time. What what the Red Army seems to do is amass a huge amount of forces, pull the battering ram back, swing it in, wham, in it comes. A couple of months later, their, their, their casualties are so horrendous that they, they need to stop and pause again. And they need to build up start all over again, pull back the battering ram and then go for the next one. I mean, do, do you think that's a, is that a fair assessment? That's absolutely right. And in fact, by the time, you know, this happens, that this is exactly what Hitler and the general, German generals are preparing for. The winter <coughs> offensive, the summer offensive. Where is it going to be? And of course, then this, this peters out outside of Warsaw and then they do the same thing again with Zhukov uh, and Rokosowski and, and the rest getting ready for the fight on Berlin. And they start amassing and amassing and amassing uh, troops and tanks and so on uh, and then do exactly the same thing, the battering ram this time for, for Berlin. Uh, and and uh, you're absolutely right. And it, it becomes a predictable way of warfare and the idea I think was that you just simply by this point in the war you couldn't lose I mean you you the Germans could not withstand these massive massive offensive and you're talking you're absolutely right you're talking about 700 750,000 casualties in migration for in on, the, on, the, on the German on the Russian side and on, a, the, Soviet on the Soviet side, side yeah. and some some fi- almost 500,000 casualties on the German side you're talking numbers that that are just well, if you, think, you think that sort of total casualties for Britain in the entire Second World War across the entire globe is four hundred forty thousand. Exactly. Yeah, and this is one battle. No, that dead. That's dead. Yeah. That's dead. Yes. But I mean, okay. you know, but so seven hundred fifty, seven hundred fifty thousand casualties just in Soviet, just on Bagration. It, yeah. It's just incredible. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah, it is, and it's it's so complicated, and 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 uh, you know the the. That that's the thing I I found about dealing with the Eastern Front, generally speaking, is that the numbers of of dead and and wounded and missing and so on are just so staggeringly high that very few human beings can even think about processing these numbers. I mean, I, I yeah. I'm just down the road from a from a Soviet uh, prisoner of war camp, um, where which is one of many in this area because the, because as, as you know, when the Soviets um, were invaded by the Germans at the beginning, over 3.3 million Soviet prisoners of war died in these camps. They were starved to death. Million three over three million. And um, and there were about thirty five thousand who died just down the road from here in a little uh, prison called Benyaminov, and they're all buried in mass graves with just sort of basically unmarked graves. You're talking over thirty thousand people. You know how many people died in, in Dresden or, or Hamburg? You know these big, huge tragedies uh, that are commemorated every year with whatever. Nobody even knows the names of one of those. Uh, soldiers there. The only names that we have are the, are the Italian officers because it became went from a stalag to an offlag for Italian prisoners of war who were treated horrifically by the Germans if they didn't change sides, um, if they didn't continue to support the Germans. And and so we have the graves and names of some of the Italian officers who were who were killed mm. there. But otherwise, thirty five thousand Soviets don't even know their names. 
Just gone. Just gone. And and there and these Arrays. sorts of uh, POW camps are dotted all over this area. And and this is one of the other tragedies that people just simply don't think about. And it's just the numbers. You you know, I just find it sometimes when I'm working on this stuff that I, I just how do you even think about 3.3 million um, POWs dying? You know, it's just it's just unbelievable. I can't I can't get my head around the well, numbers. Now, in a way, this what you're describing there sort of answers the next question I was going to ask. Because if you're the Red Army, and we know we know we you know because the thing we talk about a lot um, again is is how you mobilise people and how you get people to do what you want them to do in a democratic army. You know, so how did the how did the Western allies persuade people to 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 give give their lives less cheaply or, or more? You, you yeah. know what I mean? So. If you if if the Germans have starved three million Red Army soldiers, it's a pretty short. It's the explanation for um, how you mobilise a Red Army soldier is pretty short, isn't it? You say, look at what these bastards are doing to us, or have done to your your comrades. We've got to give back the same to them, and it, it's is it is it is it that simple, or is it with the because the sheer carnage and the sheer you know the, the, there must be Russian soldiers saying it ain't worth it. Um, Look how badly look how badly our army looks after us. Well, it, it, this is another point about the about the war on the Eastern Front is that it starts from the very beginning. That is from the very beginning of the German invasion of Poland in thirty nine, with Einsatzgruppen coming in and the, and the uh, Aktion yeah. Abe to get rid of the Polish intelligentsia. Then you've got the ghettoization of the Jews, <clears throat> and you've got yeah. Erich von der Bakseleski starting you know saying at Nuremberg trials. Um, uh, uh, with the invasion of the Soviet Union, that they planned to murder about 30 million Slavs through starvation in that sort of border yeah. zone. <clears throat> he thought that they would probably murder about 12 million in the first winter alone by starvation. So you're talking about a war that it's again very difficult for people who study, you know, the Normandy landings or, or even Italy or, or wherever. Perhaps there's a glimmer of it, of the understanding when you look at the sort of Japanese POW camps or whatever. But the brutality, the mentality behind the war on the Eastern Front from the very beginning was one of annihilation. And so when you go in with an army that means to mass murder, but you've also, you're going into territories like Belarus and Ukraine, which are very mixed because they've also just been under the Soviet Stalinist terror. And, and yeah, they want yeah. to be, get, get out from under the Soviet yoke. And so you get this, this very, very complex, murky uh, a zone of warfare where you've got partisans, you've got people changing sides, you've got Germans going over to the Soviets, many Soviets going over to the Germans, the Hilfsvilliger people, who, because don't forget the Soviets took a lot of their uh, troops just going through the villages and saying, you're coming with us. Um, if your if yeah. your parents were murdered by the Stalin in, in the uh, in the famine in Ukraine, <clears throat> you might change sides. You know, so it's very very murky, very very complicated here. And that's one of the reasons I think people avoid it as well, because, you know, it's, it's hard to find the, the heroes and the villains in this, in this piece. I mean, they're, they're, and, right, yeah. and the brutality multiplies so that when you, get, when you look at the... Philip Blood has done a fantastic book on the partisan war uh, some years ago uh, in Belarus, um, headed by uh, Erich von der Bakseleski, who's the higher SS uh, police leader in, in, based in Minsk. I mean, the, the, the brutality, you know, you have, you have the most despicable, I mean, not just people being massacred in hospitals or, or all that kind of thing that became part for the course in the Eastern Front, but the sorts of tortures, the sorts of, you know, having people's tongues nailed to tables and, and, and genitalia cut off, just, I mean, just most disgusting, horrific things being done from one party to the others. These were no longer uh, soldiers in any sense that we'd recognize in the West. Yeah. They, they become so brutalized, so many of them, and, and the things that were done 
um, you know, you'd go to a village and see these sorts of atrocities, you'd say, ah, well, I cannot be captured by the Soviets or the Nazis because this is going to happen to me. And the fear, the terror was unbelievable. And in fact, if you look at somewhere like Belarusia, the the so-called Rolban, this is the big road that goes really between uh, uh, Warsaw via Minsk to Moscow, the, the Germans never controlled the territory around it. If you were stupid enough to go and stray into into the Pripyat marshes, you were going to be killed. You, you, you didn't yeah. live. So the sense of fear was palpable. So so uh, the soldiers overreacted very often. Something that was even a minor, um, you know, in, in, uh, incident would turn into something major because they would just go in all guns blazing. So it, it was a it was a terrifying place to be as a either German or Soviet soldier. So you you you. You cannot win, can you? I mean, you know, no, I mean, no. you can end up on the winning side if you're happy, if you're lucky enough to survive. But your chance of surviving from, you know, uh, as a soldier from 1941 to 1945 in the Red Army is zip, isn't it? It's basically zero. Statistically and, zero. I mean, more or less. I mean, some did, some did, some made it and, and some Germans, too. But that's the other thing is a very, very few uh, Germans went through the whole Eastern Front experience and most of them died at one point or another. And and so when I was doing all my interviews in Berlin um, in the 1980s of the soldiers, of the German soldiers, most of them had gone in in maybe 43 at the very earliest, oh 44. Alex, you just, you, you see, you just drop that in and, and, and that just makes me you've got to do this book because yes, yes, yes. <laughs> you you have you have interviews from the 1980s when these guys are in their kind of 60s and 70s you know it, it's 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 you know where they're where they've got that they're retired they've got you know the kids have flown the nest they've got time to kind of sort of analyze their experience it's the perfect time mm. to be in a, in a man in a veteran's life to be interviewing them and you've got all those testimonies it's just Wow. I, I mean, I just, I can't wait to see those. I really can't. I, I'd just be fascinating. We're going to take a break right now and we'll be back with Alex Ritchie in a second. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Chalk. We're talking to Alex Ritchie about Operation Bagration and the Eastern Front, History and Legacy. How frankly and freely did they talk about their experiences, though? Because because if it's this unremitting horror and the chances are the odds, the odds are against you. Because Guy, Guy Sager, for instance, is his famous account or is it or what or novelization? We don't know. Um, is, is, you know, notable for being one of the only or one of the very few accounts from someone from the Eastern Front. What were they what were they saying? Were they? Well, they were they were. You know what, what tended to happen. I was I was lucky because I, I managed to go in via friends, and and I also managed to interview quite a few uh, and talk to quite a few uh, when I was growing up in Canada um, through yeah. f- through friends and so on. And and um, you know they were fairly open. Okay, none of them admitted to raping and pillaging. Of course, they were usually yeah, they usually saw themselves as as victims. As I said, most of the people yeah. I talked to were. Uh, were pretty young and they they went in pretty late so they were in in 44 maybe Uh, lots of them were you know 18 19 year olds so I didn't get to interview the the top of the SS guys one of the people that that um, I've I've talked to James about this before uh, well my father-in-law was uh, in 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 Warsaw during the war um, but then he was put for seven years in Stalinist prison and one of the things that the Germans did uh, the I'm sorry the Soviets did to punish 
those who'd fought against, you know, were considered to be Polish national representatives of some kind, yeah. uh, was put them in with Nazi uh, criminals. So he, for example, saw Hus, the commandant of Auschwitz, being led to his execution. Uh, his friend uh, uh, Mocharski was uh, sat in prison with, um, with Stroop, who, who crushed the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And uh, Jürgen Stroop and my father-in-law was in the same block as him. And he was, <clears throat> he was in with, a, with another uh, criminal called the Butcher of, of Warsaw, who was responsible for some of the mass killings. And so he talked to me about what these guys were saying in prison, about what they what they'd done and, and, and so on. So they had conversations? They had conversations, yes. And in fact, Motarski wrote a book called... Um, Rather uh, than kind of rip each other's throats out. No, they, they had conversations. And, and what's really interesting is Motarski's book is... Um, wow. is He actually wrote a book about sitting with Jürgen Stroop. Uh, it's, it's out in English as well. Uh, no. Yes. And, and, um, really? I've yeah. just, that's just not on my radar at all. And, What's uh, it called? And, um, it's uh, interviews with an executioner or diary of ex- executioner, something like that. I, I forget the English translation. Wow. And and he, it's in this prison in Makotov prison in in uh, Warsaw. So I also had the great benefit of talking uh, with my father-in-law about his interviews and discussions with the top SS guys who were waiting to be executed. Um, he was in prison from forty-six to forty-seven, forty-eight with these guys. They were most of them were executed in forty-eight. So there was time to talk to them. So he's got this sort of angle of the top SS guys and the and the and, wow. and the Gestapo. And what guys. was their take? I mean, what, what were they? Completely... T- they were basically they thought they were doing the right thing, and they they were you yeah. know fulfilling Hitler's. You know, this is the thing that that I find difficult. So the guys I I interviewed were were young soldiers, most of them just taken, and and they, I didn't come across. Maybe they were lying. Maybe they were faking it. But I didn't come across these sort of died in the wool. You know, we did the right thing and and whatever. Sometimes when they got a little bit tipsy and it was late in the evening um, and then the whole thing about the Jews would come out or the whole thing about, you know, the the Poles would come out or the the Russians were were brutes and Bolsheviks and we were saving the world from Bolshevism. Uh, you know, Poland started the war. You know, there, there were all sorts of stupid things. Churchill should have made peace with the Germans. These were sort of sort of standard standard things. But sure. the but the but the real criminals um, after the war they went back to Germany and you know put their put their pipes in their mouths and put their slippers up on the on the things and their kids thought they were perfectly nice people. Um, I had one interview with a Polish guy who was quite an extraordinary uh, person who was um, a witness to, he was, he was forced during the Warsaw Uprising to burn the bodies that the Germans had, had massacred in the Vola massacre and so on in, in Warsaw. Um, tens of thousands of people were killed. And he, they were gathered, they were imprisoned and, and, uh, by the SS and they were forced to burn these bodies. And by doing, because they had to move from place to place, the SS guys who were guarding them uh, essentially lived with them. So they could listen to the conversations of these SS guys in the evening and around the fire having their verst and, and beer right. and stuff like that. And he said, you know, he, one of them was a teacher, one of them was a, a, a kind of academic, another one was a real sort of brutal thug, and they fought with each other all the time about what was happening. And, and one of them said to the other, you know, you, we can't have you talking about the bombing of Hamburg, uh, you know, because it means you're a traitor and we're, we're going to have to shoot you or whatever. And they were fighting with each other. But he, makes the, he make, made the point that when they went back to Germany, these guys, the teacher and so on, perfectly sophisticated, very well-mannered, very well-spoken. And, and here they were, you know, watching the, the 
the burning of these of these innocent civilians on the streets of Warsaw. And he could he said in his mind's eye he could just picture them going back to their homes in you know Dusseldorf or wherever Amazing. else and being absolutely just fitting right back into society. So this is the thing that that's so again so difficult about when you're talking about interviews and so on. Isn't what it? they actually did and what they actually saw and what they actually thought mm. about it at the time and then getting them uh, to to talk about it later. And this is why the my father-in-law's experiences Mocharski's experiences in prison are so interesting because these guys knew they were going yeah. to be executed so they talked but um, and some of them didn't of course because they didn't they, I really they, want to read that book you mentioned yeah interviews with, with an executioner you yeah I think it's, it's it's and it's by um, Mocharski I can I can send uh, send you the um, send me the link the that'd link. be great I mean I've got quite a few I've got a few um, memoirs from the Eastern Front and, and they all go back to kind of 1944-45 because of course you know it's at the end of the war so their chances of getting through are just fractionally higher than if you're you're starting in 1941 or whatever um uh, you know this black idol vice that uh, just brings up uh, you know comes into my mind of course as a guy so yeah and uh, but but there's there are quite a few of them but to have actually had the opportunity to talk to a lot of veterans i mean wow particularly in the 1980s like you have is is just amazing because of course that's a, that's something that's gone you know that that opportunity has now passed. You know, and and it's all right for someone like me. You know, where I'm sort of concentrating on on, on the Western War because you can go to America or you can go to Canada or, or or the Imperial War Museum or whatever it might be, and there's there's rafts of interviews to sort of keep us all going forevermore. But you know, there aren't that many of, of German interviews. And Ditto, I guess, uh, you know, what what programs are are there in the Soviet Union to record? testimonies i mean are there any i mean you you've got yeah. a lot of soviet testimonies yeah. too haven't you yes i do i mean one of the things we lived in moscow and in st petersburg in the 1990s so these guys were getting a little little older but one of the things i was concentrating on then was also talking to women because there were you know 400 yes, something well, thousand women that. who fought in, in in one form or another in the soviet union but a lot of them were uh you know things like working as nurses or or whatever these women were what what one, one of the things that really struck me you asked asked earlier about the, you know, how did you motivate the Soviets to fight? They yeah. were completely 100% motivated. They didn't necessarily like Stalin that, that much, although they saw him as the great wartime leader that was, that. but they had been attacked. Their precious country had been attacked and they were completely 100%, not one single one I talked to wouldn't have given their lives for for the, for, you know, Mother Russia. I mean, they were absolutely, the absolutely. And they lost friends, family, you know, they, they, but they would put the, themselves mm. out there. I talked to a couple of women who, who had volunteered right at the beginning. They were turned away and then they're taken on later because they, obviously the Soviets were running out of, out of manpower or women power as it were. And they, and they taken, started taking many more women later on in the war and so on. But they were absolutely 100% motivated to, you know, rid their territory of these, these, uh, Nazi beasts, and again, the Nazis behaved so abysmally when they came into Soviet territory that really, you know, it was it was kind of fight or fight or die kind of feeling for for many of them. Yeah, yeah. What's the state of the Soviet archive? If you wanted to say, if you were a, a, about to embark on a on a single volume history, of well, when I was there, I was I was extremely lucky because uh, this was the time of Boris Yeltsin, who's who was much derided yeah. in the West and and laughed at because he was drunk and stuff. But he was really yeah. the only democratic leader that, that Russia's ever had. And, and uh, uh, because Putin, especially Putin, this version of Putin certainly is not. Uh, and the archives were open and there was freedom of speech <clears throat> and so on. And so we were able to get in and, and, um, and, and a lot of institutions um, like the old 
ladies who ran the archives didn't know what scanners were, for example. So you had these guys from the Hoover Institution just scanning pages like crazy. And that stuff is that <laughs> stuff is now in, in you know in, in the Hoover Institution in, in California and, and uh, Yale and, and some other universities managed to get yeah. uh, uh, copies. Now it's almost impossible to get in. And uh, my friends who are who are um, Russian historians, who I used to have quite an open relationship with, could email and so on. I very slowly over the years lost contact with them, partly, I think, because they're just afraid to be in touch with uh, Western historians. I think there's a there's a sense of of fear and, and so on. Um, so open uh, digging for the, let's say, more complicated sides of the war, like the mass rapes, stuff like that. Uh, absolutely no way right now. Unfortunately, one day hopefully it'll it'll all open. There's so much material in Russia, so much material. Not only Russian stuff, because the Russians and the NKVD documented absolutely everything. I remember going into the Lubyanka. I was able to in the Elson years able to go in. I I actually went into there. Um, they had a My they God. had a museum for how you fight partisans, you know, Ukrainians with these with these like Whoa. fake grass forts, you know, built stuff. It was incredible. Um, now you just it, it's impossible to think about doing that. I went down to see where the where the execution cells were in the Lubyanka, for example. I don't think that's possible anymore. Um, so so wow. quite an extraordinary experience but the but the um but the situation now is is quite bad and the and the thing is that the russians not only have um the russian stuff the NKD, nkvd stuff and they documented everything uh but they also yeah. have a lot of german stuff captured german stuff captured romanian stuff captured hungarian stuff captured yeah. wow. Baltic okay. stuff. you yeah. know so it's just sitting there and 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 um again in the, oh, in the god it's so frustrating uh, it, isn't it, it really is and i don't think that you know if if we were all of a sudden given access to all of this stuff i don't think we'd find anything you know, earth-shatteringly new about the no. about the war. I mean, we pretty well have pieced it all together, and we have enough. Uh, oh, but it's just stuff. granular detail, but isn't it? It's a granular it? detail, and 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 actually, the the real shame is exactly the sort of thing, like the the everyday life of of people on the front of of the soldiers of the. Uh, and of the of the civilians, I mean, we talk about Stalingrad all the time, and 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 so on. But you know, one forgets that there were women and children living in holes by the river. You know, that's the only place they could survive. They couldn't get out, and they and they lived in little caves they'd made for themselves. I mean, you know, the situation of the civilians in in this part of the world was just beyond belief, unbelievable. So, so again, those stories have been lost because we we don't have access to uh, to testimonies and materials and so on. So yeah, to, but, but but has the, did the did the Soviet state ever do any kind of oral history program, or is that just they not part they of it at all? they do? I mean, they do. There there are memoirs and so on. But you know, the trouble is, it's it's all part of the official Soviet pre-time Soviet now Russian narrative, right. uh, which is you know the Great Patriotic War, and you and you and and of course many people believe this, and this is the line that's followed. But anything that deviates from that is removed or is just not mentioned. So, you know, there were huge, um, the huge Soviet reversals at the beginning of the war um, are very, very, you know, very rarely talked about. The the, the treatment of the prisoners of war, the, the end, uh, you know, the, the fact that so many Soviets changed sides. Uh, the the, yeah. the anti-Soviet partisan war that was done with the Germans, all these things are ignored. And again, of course, people know about the mass rapes and so on, but, you know, you're not allowed to talk about this sort of thing at all. And and instead of sort of looking into it and saying, well, what was it that that you know what was what were the conditions in the Red Army that that um, made people feel that you could behave this way? 
um, instead yeah. of analyzing it from that point of view. And, and of course, then learning from those mistakes in future wars. No, that never happened. It, it, it was all just sort of wiped over and glossed over. And, and one of the good things that's happened, you know, from the German perspective is you've got amazing uh, things like, for example, the Topography of Terror um, Documentary mm -hmm. Center in Berlin, which is yeah, yeah. A, a unique museum in the sense that it sees the, the crimes of the SS and the uh, Wehrmacht and so on from the perspective of the perpetrators. So why were people motivated to do these terrible crimes? What happened in Germany that, that actually prompted people to behave in this, in this dreadful way? Uh, and you don't yeah, have that yeah. at all in the, in, on the Soviet side. No. I mean, I, when I went to Moscow, I think it was four years ago now, you know, you go to the, you go to the Victory Park and you go to the museum there, And there's this peculiar feeling when you're going around. I think, well, you haven't told us why you, the Red Army was in Poland in the first place when the, Russia, when the, when the Germans attacked it. Well, yeah, that, you know, that's uh, true. What? It's quite funny that in the way it's presented because there are, it's presented with simple gaps. Yes, absolutely. And, simple, and, with, and, and the, the gaps you're supposed to, I, I, I imagine, you're just supposed to go, oh, well, that's just how it happened, rather than um, look, look any further i mean i was that museum is that museum is is extraordinary with the murals and the the glass work inside it and the memorial outside and the pres the presentation even now of the great patriotic war as the uh, as the as the you know the russian state's justifying foundation narrative and the new russian state post-soviet russian state it's, it's really really interesting I, i mean we talk you know again a big big topic of discussion in the uk is 1940s standing alone as our found as the foundation the modern british foundation myth but here's the ab absolute this is the the they're mainlining this idea uh, as the even now for this russian state the great patriotic well, war is part absolutely. of its self self image well absolutely and, and 39 to 41 is oops you know didn't happen we didn't invade yeah. and yeah. if they do if they do have to talk about it for whatever reason it's because of course stalin was was brilliant and he was able to foresee what was happening and and he was you know preempting hitler and he knew there was going to be war so in other words he's he's now been written back into history and it's happening more and more one of the things i find yeah. slightly worrying about contemporary russia under putin right now is the rehabilitation of stalin and um, and him and him you know the the crimes that were investigated again under yeltsin and, and after the collapse of communism are all vanishing uh, in fact there was a spat between poland and um, and russia about six months ago because uh, putin yeah. was saying that Um, you know that Poland was responsible for the Second World War, basically, um, which doesn't really go over very well uh, in Warsaw. I would have to say, um, yeah. But so that that part of history just disappears. Of course, in Poland, you've got the complete opposite narrative. Everything begins with the Germans invaded the first of September, and the seventeenth of September, the Soviets, you know, do the same thing, and yeah. and, and you know, and Katyn is a big big story, and so on. But there's a there's of course the issue uh, between Russia and Poland about Katyn still with the Russian. Yeah. Some Russians now going back on what Yeltsin had, had said and even Gorbachev had, had given the, 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 the papers and the proofs of uh, Stalin signing on the murders of Katyn. Some of them are saying, no, 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 it's not true. It was all German propaganda. So, you know, there are reversals in, in history or historiography in Russia, which are, are, are quite scary. I have to say. Yeah, yeah, staggering, yeah, really. Absolutely. God. Yeah. So and as you'll have seen in Moscow, you know, four years ago, you, you're already getting the, you know, the revised second world war version oh yeah yeah uh, but you know most, having, most most definitely but having said that and, you, and, know, and, you can't you can't deny that the the you know the average average soviet red army soldier 
I mean, what they went through and how they were treated well, is well, just um, unbelievable. And to come back to Bagration, you look at you look at that battle. That is the that is the Red Army winning the land war, um, you know, uh, uh, in in a couple of months, yes. basically, yeah. isn't yeah. it? If, if, yeah, yeah. And and you can't you whatever way you want to cut it, you can't take that away from the Absolutely. from the Red Army. Absolutely, and, and, yeah, and, and, and via and via corduroy roads across the Pripyat marshes. I mean, yeah, exactly. yes, first <laughs> corduroy. Do you mean do you mean corduroy? I mean. Well, they're locked, aren't they? Locked. Locked, like, no, 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 like, but it's, no, 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 but it's, but, just, but it's, it's, just, it's just incredible. Yeah. It is How incredible. Lo- I mean, uh, we, we talk a lot about um, the teeth and the tail. What's the, what's the Soviet teeth to tail ratio in the Red Army. How many how many guys on the front line and how many people supplying? Because I know I've read John Erickson describing, you know, uh, that the, the artillery shells being carried up by men, that you'd, you'd have an artillery shell in your pack and then you'd drop it at the, at, at, at the battery um, uh, depot and then you'd go forward to your position. I've read that. Yeah, it, I mean, the, the, it's a much, starting it's off a much with, smaller ratio. Well, yeah, you're starting off with um, about, uh, as I said, starting off with 1.6 million troops, but you're going to two, yeah. 2.5 million uh, personnel and people, you know, in the, in, yeah. in, in, by the end of the of Bagration, you've got um, two and a half million uh, Soviets who are engaged in one form or another with the, uh, you know, supplying and and bringing, yeah. as you say, ammunition and all that sort of thing up to the front. It's it's so, a lot so, higher than than the British fourteen percent infantry, forty three percent service. Uh, much course. higher, much higher, and 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 you know they. I mean, it's not that they had, you know, manpower uh, or woman power, um, you know, to spare, but they but they did utilize the entire population. I mean, people were. Uh, and as I said, much much higher use of, of women, for example, um, in 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 all sorts of lines of, of work, snipers and and uh, and yeah, and sure. so on. But and uh, even but, in tanks, of course, and tanks a little bit, and um, but also of course medical personnel and 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 all the auxiliary roles. Uh, many many of these things were taken by by women. So Alex, who's in the factories? Who's who's doing the producing? Well, this is a is that older guys or is that women or what? It's 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 a it's older guys. It's it's young young people. It's women. Um, but you know, interestingly enough, a lot of the factories were 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 depleted by the by the war because people were taken out of working in the factories and they were sent onto the front line. So, uh, you know, because right. the, because there's this sort of myth and the Germans had this idea that you know the the. The Soviets, they just keep reproducing. You have all these people. Actually, there was, a, of course, a labor shortage, manpower shortage as well. And, um, and, and they just, they just uh, made do. And as I, as I was saying, the, some of the women that I uh, talked to in, in um, Moscow um, who'd lived through the war, um, you know, ended up it's just young, young kids basically going and working in factories or whatever, um, you know, barely paid. But they did it out of patriotic sense of, you know, patriotism, uh, di- digging anti-tank ditches around Petersburg or whatever. They, they just went and did it. And, and the, the yeah. population was really highly motivated and mobilized. And so this was very true, of course, in factories and so on as well. They, they just took anybody. How were... Um We've talked about the casualties. How would how would a Soviet general general get away with such um, uh, such a butcher's bill? You know, he, it, it, is it a question of you, you you go you go to Stalin and 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 he says, well, clearly you're not enough of your men are getting killed. You're not fighting hard enough. <laughs> yeah, that was actually. I mean, that it, was actually uh, very much Stalin's view. I mean, Zhukov was known as the butcher by his own men uh, because he yeah. killed so many of his of his own people and in in completely stupid ways. I know um, uh, you've been to the to the um, site of the 
um, battles just outside of Berlin, haven't you? That, that, yeah, that, yeah, where, yeah, the, yeah. Where, where Zhukov had you know put lights <laughs> lights in behind his his own men, so of course marking them out perfectly for the Germans to you know to to pick them off, uh, and and he, nothing ha- ever happened to him. He was considered to be perfectly okay, and it was fine. Um, and uh, and there but there were some generals. I mean, Zhukov was probably one of the worst, uh, but that you had other generals who were much much more uh, clever and cared much more about their men. Shuikov probably number one in that regard. Where, where does Rokossovsky And Rokossovsky very this? much very much so as well. He was a he was much more a professional in that sense, and he did not throw men you know, onto the onto the barricades for no reason. He was much more cautious. So I think that, I mean, I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination that the Soviets cared for their soldiers. Their lives were worth nothing. They didn't, um, they, you know, there was no notice sent home if they were, if they were killed. They, nobody knew, you know, that's why I said in the prisoner of war camp just down the road, we don't know any of their names. We don't know who they are. Um, because they were... So for most people who, most Russian Russian lads who went off to war and mm. didn't come back, mm. their family have no idea what happened to them. Absolutely, no idea. And they did have a little tight kind of canister that they, they could wear around their necks with their names and so on. But a lot of them were superstitious, so they didn't they didn't uh, wear them because they knew that if they died, that would be the, the only thing that would... So the mothers and fathers back at home, all they know is that their son has just yeah. not returned from the war. Exactly. God, yeah. bloody no hell. No idea. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, they they have no idea. So there's no there's no letter from from the adjutant saying no, I'm awfully sorry. No. You're... And that's the other thing is, as I said, you know, because of the massive deaths God. at the beginning, when you've taught when you're talking about millions of uh, soldiers taken prisoner, and those 3.3 million um, Russian prisoners of war who died, um, we don't we don't know any any of them. We really just don't know any of them. And there's some amazing testimonies from, from around here of people who were who lived in the, the little village next to me who were witnesses to the way they were being treated. I mean they were naked, they had no food, they were they were there was cannibalism, they were they ate all the grass on the ground for which they were beaten up. I mean they, they, they tried to get seeds and so on. And the, the, the local populations could see the way they were being treated. And one woman was actually um, killed for trying to throw food across one uh, to one um, group of prisoners. So, you know, it's a very, very sad and tragic situation, but um, we don't know who they, they were. And uh, you're, you're talking three over three million people who just vanished. We, we don't know anything about who they That's were. That's just... I had no idea it was quite as... I mean, I knew the numbers of prisoners that were, that, that were lost, but the fact that they're just anonymous, just gone. Just gone. Yes. Just, yeah. I just... Yeah. Yeah, erased from memory, everything. I mean, and, and the thing, the tragedy incredible. about this is that is that not only so the ones who who did survive miraculously survived um, German uh, POW camps were then arrested and and sent to the gulag. Yeah, yeah. And the ones who who um, who died here, the only reason that we even know there's this grave is because after the war, the Polish locals put uh, markers on the on the um, on the burial sites. So there are these endless um, kind of concrete markers with with uh, just you know 2000 bodies 5000 bodies or whatever so 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 there's just no commonwealth war graves equivalent or anything like that in not Soviet, not for the Russia. not for the POWs because Stalin considered them all to oh, be traitors. Oh, what about the, just the ordinary soldiers? Oh yeah, the ordinary soldiers is different because they were considered to be heroes of the Soviet Union, and you see those big, huge uh, cemeteries, for example, in Berlin, the the, the two huge right. uh, cemeteries and so on. But again, we don't know who most of the uh, soldiers are in those. Um, in those are. It's just a memorial too. Yes, and a and, and a lot of those uh, a lot of the. Um, uh, graves tombs have mass graves of soldiers as well but we don't know who they are 
but the POWs. So they just all shoveled it. They just, just shoveled, shoveled it to each pit. Yeah, pets. yeah. And we don't we don't have records. <clears throat> there are more records on the soldiers. We have more idea of who who you know uh, where they died and so on. If you if you died in the Battle of Berlin, you're more likely to have been remembered. Your unit would have some some uh, knowledge of you and and so on. But the POWs were considered to be traitors, and therefore they were erased from history. And that's something that I find I still to this day when I go, I find it one of the most moving places, you know, in around this area, which is um, full of, of World War Two sites and so on. Most of them unknown or unmarked. But I sometimes go there, just look around and, and I'm just filled with such sorrow for these young men who, you know, who mm. just lie there and nobody has a clue yeah. about about who they are or or, or you know, and they, they would have been just, you know, young, young guys picked up from some village or whatever. What what a terrible time to be alive if you're from that part of the world. Yeah, right? yeah. It's, it, there's not much. It, just it, it, it is very hard. You're right. It's it's very hard to compute into your brain, isn't it? Just yeah. Get, just to get your head around yeah. around. Yeah. The, the the brutality, the barbarity. Yeah. The losses, the scale. It's 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 you know, and it's a pinprick in time ago. Yeah, exactly. Ex- absolutely. I, mean, I know. I know. I know. The Second yeah. World War is receding, but but you know, compared to kind of you know the ancient Egyptians, Romans, whatever. I mean, it is it is no distance in time yeah, yeah. you know we're supposed to be developed countries you know we're, we're, yeah. we're supposed to be kind of better than that and that, it's just it's god it's amazing well it? and as a piece of history it's a foundation for some people that's the other you know uh like we were just saying that that horrendous time the russian state isn't being honest about isn't celebrate and is celebrating to some extent so i mean it's yes. a, yeah, and it's interesting it's that the changes in the in the May Day parade, for example, so the the marking yeah. the end of the war, which when I was there was was um, very much a sort of military parade. Now it's it's turned into something else, which is interesting. That uh, everybody has a picture or photograph of an individual who died in the war. Most of them relatives, but some some sometimes others. Most of them they don't know what happened to them or whatever, but they'll have a picture of their great grandfather or their great uncle or something like that, and they march in the street now with them. So there is this sort of personalization of, of the of the deaths of the Red Army soldiers, which didn't happen before, which I find quite interesting. But one of the other problems is that not just in Russia, but in <clears throat> this part of the world, the Second World War history, because it's so complicated, you can choose. You know, we were the good Poles, or we were the good Ukrainians, or we were the good, you know, Belarusians, or whatever else. And you can create yeah. a, a sort of a national myth out of it. And the complexity is being lost. The complexity is that there's no martyr state or no group of individuals uh, that behaved absolutely stunningly well. I mean, it, it, it is a very murky, complicated, difficult history. And as you say, mm-hmm. as long as it's fading, the people who who um, who remember it and remember the complexities are fading and so it's easier for a, a historical narrative to be put in its place which which glorifies the nation in question and that's i think yeah. something that's happening it's happening all over the world but in this part of the world it's particularly dangerous because the second world war really was that complex here uh, and different groups and national groups and ethnic groups and so on were um, were mixed up in all sorts of complicated ways because of the isms, because of communism, Stalinism, Bolshevism, because of Nazism and totalitarianisms and, and the things that people do under those sorts of systems are so horrific. And you didn't have the same narrative. So when you look at the Battle of Britain or whatever, it really is the good guys versus the nasty Nazis. I mean, you know, you get your spitfires out there, you get your, you know, daring do guys, you know, with the dam busters or whatever, and you got good and evil and it's really straightforward and it's all wonderful but in this part of the world you 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 get lost very quickly in that mire of of evil and despicable acts Mm. 
Wow. Well, thanks for wow. thanks for being our guide. You're being our, our corduroy road through the, um, <laughs> the, the the marshes of the murky eastern front. Thank you, thank Alex. Thank you so much. Yeah, um, that's I mean, amazing. Uh, I mean, it's good to be pulled up on 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 a, a, you know a, a section of the war that we don't talk about very much, and also just that the scale is absolutely mind-boggling. Yeah. Uh, from the scale of the battles. To the scale of the impact on people's lives and so so many people's lives. It's, um, it's been brilliant to talk to you. Thank you very much. Great pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, wonderful. Cheerio. Thank you. Cheerio.